Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how the heck are you doing today? I'm a lot better than I have been over the past few weeks. I am glad to hear that. Yeah, how Likewise, are you? I, I'm feeling much better as well. It's good to have us both uh, healthy and, uh, and back up to speed, I think. Well, healthy is probably the one thing, yeah. Then we'll <laughs> right. up to speed, yeah. Let's see how it goes. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so to celebrate, we are going to not do the top 10 films of 1988. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Yeah. We are actually doing our top 10 films of 1988 tonight, uh, as well as uh, we're going to talk about some pretty cool films as well. Phil, tell people what's on tap besides yes. the 80s. We will be looking after the ending of The Warriors, the cult classic, and also Luc Besson's The Fifth Element. Yes, two very good films, uh, and uh, definitely The Warriors is a cult classic, a movie that I love. And real quickly before we get started, I just want to throw out a quick shout-out to my friends over at the Digital Cross Trader podcast, also known as DXT. Uh, It's a a great show about digital card collecting if you're into that kind of thing, which I happen to be. Um, There are some great digital card apps out there for The Walking Dead and Star Wars, and uh, there's sports apps and wrestling, all kinds of stuff. And um, so they invited me to come on the show and talk a little bit about The Walking Dead and Star Wars, which are things uh, you probably all know I'm a big fan of. So we had a real cool conversation. Uh, in the latest episode of that show about those cards. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, uh, definitely check it out and check out the show in general because it's a really good podcast and I enjoy listening to it. So quick shout out to those guys. Thanks for having me on. It was a real blast. Yes, good stuff. Uh, Something I know very little about, but I am aware of those digital cards. So I'll be giving it a listen, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a fun, goofy little hobby, but uh, some of us, myself included, have been known to take it kind of seriously in the past. <laughs> uh, I, I may have a touch of the OCD, um, you know, so a little obsessive sometimes, but I've, I've calmed it down a bit. So uh, oh, well, I talk about all that in the episode. There's so many things out there you can collect, though. There's a, what's one more? That's exactly it, exactly. <laughs> so, and I'm I'm no stranger to any of them. So, <laughs> good stuff. All right, so uh, let's jump into our films then. Why don't we start off? What do you want to start with, Phil? Let's go with the Warriors. Let's see if they're going to come out and play. Warriors. All right, <laughs> great. Well, the Warriors, 1979 film, directed by Walter Hill, starring James Remar and a bunch of other people you probably have never heard of. And uh, the story goes that Cyrus, who is the leader of the Gramercy Riffs, the most powerful gang in New York City, calls a midnight meeting of all the New York gangs. He proposes a citywide truce, but Luther, leader of the Rogues, shoots Cyrus and then frames a gang called the Warriors for it. The Riffs call out to all the other gangs for the Warriors' blood, and the Warriors go on the run. DJ Swan, the leader of the Warriors, takes charge and leads Ajax, Snow, Cowboy, Vermin, Cochise, Fox, and Rembrandt through the subway into the Bronx. They meet a lower-end gang called the Orphans and almost form a truce with them, but things escalate and the Warriors end up on the run once again, this time with Mercy, a female orphan, joining them. They end up chased by the police and a gang called the Baseball Furies. They also end up separated and one of the Warriors, Fox, is killed. They're lured in by a female gang called the Lizzies, and they end up narrowly escaping their sneak attack. The Warriors reunite and finally make it back to Coney Island, only to find the rogues waiting for them. 
Cyrus brags about killing Luther and challenges DJ Swan to a duel, but Swan wins and the Riffs, who have shown up and heard the truth about Cyrus and Luther, overpower the rogues while also acknowledging the warriors' innocence. And the film ends with the warriors walking along the beach, free from the vengeance of the gangs. And that is The Warriors. Excellent. I can dig it. Yeah. Can you dig it? (laughs) Yeah, really good film. I do enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's definitely a cult classic for a reason. I mean, it, it is kind of, you know, it's very it's 1979. It's very like late 70s, early 80s. I mean, it's it's definitely a bit dated, but it's just so much fun to see all these gangs, these different costumes and this sort of yeah. this ch- giant chase movie. You know, I've always loved that sort of format for a film and uh it, it's just a movie I really enjoy. Yeah. It, yeah, it it has dated a bit, but I I think the style of it and the fact it's all like its own little universe with the gangs and everything. That sort of means it, it's 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 it sort of jumps the age it is it can it can carry on going on because it's it's quite stylized in a way yeah no i agree yeah. definitely it, it holds up really well as a good as an enjoyable film experience and and like you said it, it is so over the top and they have all these costumes and stuff yeah they've got their own rules and their own laws and things like right, that right right exactly it, it definitely i think um is is a neat kind of snapshot of an alternate new york city if you will although maybe there really were gangs dressing up in makeup and costumes i don't know but none that i ever experienced yeah, you know, no. in all my in all my gang time. Yeah, yeah back, was, back in the know. days when we were yeah hanging with the gangs on the streets. <laughs> right. right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good days, good days. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Apart from all the violence and drugs, that was terrible. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, all right, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us your day after? Okay. Although the alert has been called off, the warriors are still wary. They've had a terrible night, had to fight all sorts. They didn't know who to trust, what to do, so the world's still a bit hyper. They try and sleep and recover but there's always someone on watch. The warriors just want to rest and keep their own little patch of the city safe and under their control. But the other gangs keep on keeping on. Cyrus's words did reach some of them, and some gangs decide to begin talks with other gangs that begin truces, while others just want to watch the world burn. That's my day after. Ooh, I like it. Very Thank cool. You. Thank you. What's your, what about your day after? All right, well, DJ Swan and the rest of the warriors slowly break up and head back to their respective homes. Swan spends most of the next day in bed, recuperating from the brutal night. He orders a pizza and drinks a few beers on Sunday night, then crashes for the evening. Monday morning, his alarm clock goes off at 7 a.m. like it does every Monday. He gets up, showers, brushes his teeth, and heads out. A little while later, he arrives at his destination, the Coney Island Bottling Plant. As he walks in, the security guard says, Morning, Sam. And Swan replies, Morning, Ralph. Swan picks up his time card, looks at it, Sam Swan, grade C1, and punches in. Then he heads into the plant, drops off his brown bag lunch in the break room, heads out to the plant floor. He hops in his trusty old forklift and gets to work moving pallets of soda bottles. As the morning shift continues, several familiar faces arrive. What's up, Brad? Johnny? Vince? He says as Cowboy, Ajax, and Vermin walk in in their civilian clothes. They grunt and nod and take their places throughout the plant, on the bottling line, in janitorial, and in the maintenance department. When the lunch whistle blows, they all meet up in the cafeteria and quietly discuss their adventures on Friday night. And that's my day after. Boy, I like that. Yeah, I never thought of them as having a day, a, a proper daylight. Yeah, after, you know, it's funny. That's that's sort of like. I mean, I know we go all out with our endings and we get pretty crazy. But one of the when I when I first thought of the show, the idea kind of was like the sort of the real world, what happens afterwards type of thing. You know. Yeah. And this yeah. was one of those ones where I was like, so these guys are all these you know young kids in this gang at night and on the weekends. But what happens like you know Monday morning at eight o'clock? They're not still out there running around. In you know maybe they are but it, you know I thought, I thought I thought kind of interesting to see the sort of mundane boring existence that they lead during the day yeah you know before yeah. it it becomes the warriors at night no I like it 
Yeah, very really cool. good way of going with it. Yeah. Thanks. It does get a little more interesting as I go. Don't worry. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, I look forward to it. All right. So go ahead and tell us about your immediate aftermath. Okay. Uh, the Warriors and a few other gangs are the last of a dying breed in New York City. Since the big meetup, there have been various gang wars. The ones that had truces with others just became bigger and more powerful. And it's all out war on the streets and innocent people have begun leaving the city. Police and fire services are pushed to their limits, but there's little they can do anyway. The city is in turmoil. Ooh, sounds like things are, uh, maybe a storm is brewing. Yeah, yeah, I just, uh, I thought, instead of following the warriors themselves, I just thought I'd follow the city after the events of what happened. Ah, I like that, that's cool. Okay, let's see what's happening with you other, what's happening in their, their day job. All right. Well, life continues as normal for a while. The warriors work their day jobs or go to school during the week, and then they head out at nights and on weekends to live it up as the warriors. They avoid going into the city for a while, spending most of their time instead tormenting locals and tourists who are visiting Coney Island's famous boardwalk and beach. But word starts to creep in from the city. With Luther dead, the gangs have started to move in on the Rift's territory, sensing a power vacuum. The gangs are starting to fight more and more, and it isn't long before a gang war breaks out. DJ Swan still remembers their night on the run and warns the warriors not to get involved and to keep to Coney Island and stay out of things. He figures it will all sort itself out. Unfortunately, it isn't long before the gang war comes to them. When Cochise and Rembrandt get jumped and beaten, the warriors have no choice but to go on the offensive. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Oh, it's all kicking off. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of uh, gang violence in both of our endings, it seems like. Shocking. Wow. That's what happens with gang violence. Yeah, no, violence. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right. Who saw it? <laughs> All right, how about your long term then? Let's see where this is all leading. Yeah, New York City is about to explode. What's, oh, who will save the day? Okay, the government declared that New York City is a disaster zone. It is lost to the gangs. A slow evacuation takes place to save innocent citizens and police and other agencies pull out of the city. Various ideas and schemes as to what they should do with the city are given. Some are looked at, some are thrown away, some are mashed up. But then it's eventually decided they will turn it into a prison. <laughs> walls I had a feeling that's where you were going. Walls were built around New York City and the gangs, so intense on their wars, let it all happen. Before they knew it, New York City is surrounded and more prisoners are sent in. Eventually, after all the battles have finished, one true leader of the gangs comes to the fore. He calls himself the Duke of New York. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, I love it. Very nice. Although I do have to say, who thinks something that, that like building a wall around like you know a city is going to keep people out? I mean, <laughs> that that just seems ridiculous. I mean, who well, even pay for that? I know. Well, anybody Canada, I probably as as we know though, anybody with a hang well a glider, you know, with night vision oh, right, scope, that's and everything right. can get over the wall. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I think we I think we know there is no escape from New York though. I mean, let's <laughs> let's be honest. That's true. Once you're in, you can't get out. That's right. <laughs> uh, very nicely done. I like that. I like. I like the way you uh, you slowly. I didn't see that coming until right at the you know in your first two segments. I, I didn't yeah, know where you're going. Yeah, that's what I was hoping. Then I was like, oh, they're pulling out of New York. I know where you're going with this. I like it. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. So, go on. What's happening there with the uh, with the gang wars heading back to Coney Island? All right. Well, three months later, the Warriors rule New York. They started by going after the smaller, weaker gangs and forcing them to either join them or be beaten down. Once they got three or four gangs on board, they were pretty much too big to resist, and it took almost no time for them to absorb or shut down most of the rival gangs in New York. DJ Swan sits as the leader of the entire gang underworld. Swan and the other guys have quit the bottling plant and turned their time towards running the gangs. They have a steady income from the muggings, pickpocketing, and burglaries that the various gang members commit, which the warriors all get a cut of. 
As the 80s swing into full gear, drug dealers start to pop up on every street corner, capitalizing on the cocaine boom of Wall Street and the rest of the city. Swan has no respect for drugs and refuses to get into the drug trade. He brokers a deal with the police, which sees the entirety of his gangs become a network of drug informants for the police, in return for which the cops leave the warriors alone to do their business unfettered. As the gang members start to age out, Swan retires the street gangs and turns the organization into an organized crime family of sorts. Sam doesn't think that the Swan family has enough of an edge to it, so he renames the organization. DJ Swan has retired, but Sonny Steelgrave has been born. Now, let me explain because that's a real deep cut. <laughs> Okay, that about yeah. three people are going to catch that reference. <laughs> so uh, my main goal was just to kind of have him turn this Warriors gangs into an organized crime family. Okay. Um, yeah. And then I realized that the timing worked out right around to the early 90s, which would uh, make it match up perfectly with one of my favorite TV shows of all time, a show from the 90s called Wise Guy, mm-hmm. which starred Ken Wall as an undercover cop, and he goes into the mob and uh, becomes very close with this mobster Named Sonny oh, Steelgrave. Okay, I've not, I've not heard of so, that, that show. It's um, it, it is a really great show. It only lasted a few seasons. It has a very, a very culty cult following. You know, there's a handful of people out there like myself who are you know huge yeah, fans. It of sounds it. like and, something uh, I'd like. So yeah. yeah, it's really great. It has a very complicated history, which I'll explain to you sometime. <laughs> not in the show because I don't <laughs> want to bore people. But uh, like I said, about three listeners out there just went, "Yes, Sonny Steelgrave," <laughs> and everybody else is like, I, "I don't know who that is." So, well, but I, I couldn't I, resist once I thought of it. Well, when, when you mentioned names and things, I was going, well, what, what's that? Does that sound familiar? I, could, I didn't want to get I just couldn't think what it was. I, thought, I toyed with making it like the, 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 uh, the Gambino crime family, and I thought about doing something with like the Corleones, but they, they had their own history. And so then I was like, oh, Sonny Steelgrave, just a little, a little Easter egg for the, for the few fans. No, that's there. cool. Tanya, it's something like that. It's always good to discover something you've never heard of. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fun. It's good stuff. Oh, great stuff. So cool. Wise Guy. Yeah, Wise Guy. Excellent. Excellent oh, show. Okay. First season is phenomenal. All right, cool. So tell us, Phil, do you have any warrior trivia for us? Oh, I am glad you asked. Okay, then. So let's see. Trivia. Uh, In one scene, Michael Beck swings a bat into Deborah's face, and it actually hit her, and she was rushed into hospital at 3 a.m. for stitches. So uh, that wouldn't have been a good day of filming. Uh, Thomas G. Waits was fired eight weeks into photography for being difficult and arguing with Walter Hill, so his character was removed from the movie when a cop throws him into the path of a train. That's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Don't upset the director. Uh, the crew got death threats as local gangs weren't cast in the film. They were a bit upset, so they you know, started making threats and things. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Robert De Niro was asked to be cowboy, but he passed. Wow. Uh, film trucks were protected by a real gang called the Mongols, and they were paid $500 a day. Wow. David Patrick Kelly improvised Luther's Come Out to Play Taunt. Oh, really? That's a good. It's always good. You know, one of the most iconic things is something yeah. you came up with. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and using a plot device common to some of Walter Hill's uh, films that he wrote or directed, it features where a gang where the leader of the group is eliminated in the first act. Uh, other examples of that are in Aliens and Southern Comfort. And Tony Danza was offered the lead role, but he went with the taxi TV show instead. Huh. Well, that probably worked out pretty well for him, I would say. Yeah, I think he did okay out of that. Because <laughs> as much as we love The Warriors, it was not a hit film, you know? No, no, no. It's definitely a, a cult classic. Yeah, I think it's built over the years as well. Yes, yes, agreed. 
Uh, great. All right. Well, that is the Warriors then. Let's move on to a little Luke Besson and uh, the fifth element. Phil, why don't you take us through the events of that film? <laughs> yeah, no, a nice simple one to go through the events. Uh, <laughs> I do that to you a lot, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, oh, I'll take this movie. And then I look yeah. at them, I'm like, oh my God, why did I do that to poor Phil? I make him sum- summarize the, the world's most complicated plot. Yeah, so I've left out a fair bit, but uh, I, think I've got, I think I've got the chunk in there. This is one of those movies, again, where if you haven't seen it, and nothing we can do to explain it is going to make it make sense, you know? Yeah, it, it always makes sense when you're watching it, but when you're afterwards, you're going, well, yeah. Right, yeah, so yeah, it's I, I know what happened. You know, yeah. Right, this is yeah. just a refresher for people who yeah. have seen the film. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is uh, Luke Besson's The Fifth Element from 1997. stars Bruce Willis, Mila Jovovich, Gary Oldman, Chris Tucker, Ian Holm and many, many more people in some amazing costumes and special effects. Uh, But every 5,000 years, a great evil appears in the universe, and its aim is to destroy destroy all life. The only thing that can stop it is the fifth element, who uses four stones representing the four elements. It's all some kind of mystic mumbo-jumbo, but, you know, it does the job. We're then at the year 2263, and the great evil has arrived once more. Uh, An alien species known as the mando Shawan. Uh, have got a spacecraft which is bringing the fifth elements back to Earth, but it is destroyed by other aliens called the Mangalores. However, scientists managed to save some of the fifth element DNA and recreate it as Lilu, uh, played by Mila Jovovich. She escapes and falls into the taxi of Corbin Dallas, played by Bruce Willis, who also happens to be a former elite commando. So it's quite a lucky fall, to be honest. Uh, he ends up helping her. Yeah, seriously. And they are chased by Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg, uh, played wonderfully by Gary Oldman. And he also has a team of alien Mangalores. Dallas helps Lilu meet Father Vito Cornelius, uh, played by Ian Holm. And he's all, he knows all about the, the whole process of defeating the great evil. But they then have to go to, God, the, the names as well of all these characters. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this leads them to Diva Plava Laguna, the singer on the luxury space line of Floston Paradise. And she has the four stones. Uh, to get on board, they have to pretend that they've won some tickets for the holiday and they need the multipass to get on. And well, there's a lot more to go into. But anyway, they get there and they're met by interstellar radio host Ruby Rod, played by Chris Tucker, who shouts an awful lot in this film. He really oh boy, does. does he? Yeah. Yeah. I wish they'd tone that down a bit, but you know, play, he plays the part well. Uh, they get the stones and head back to Earth. There's a bit of a shootout. Zorg and the Mangalores attack. Big explosions happen and Zorg and his gang are killed. Dallas. And Lilu head back to Earth. And Cornelius, Dallas Lilu, set up the stones. But Lilu has been disillusioned with humanity after everything she's seen of uh, the future in the year 2263. But eventually Dallas convinces her, convinces her to what is worth saving. They kiss and the divine light is released, destroying the great evil, turning it into a new Earth moon. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just, that's all exactly what happens. And it does sound totally ridiculous. It, it does indeed, but a lot of people like this movie, so yeah. you know. I really like this movie, to be honest. But I know Do people, you? some people don't like, it, but I really like it. I I like the movie. I don't love the movie. I, I never. It's one of those films that you know. Even the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that, yeah. was, that was pretty good. I've just I've never. I don't know. It's not a movie I love. It's just something about it. I think maybe it's a little too silly. You know, it doesn't. I, yeah, I can't, it seems yeah. like it has a, a very uneven tone. Like sometimes it wants to be this like hard sci-fi, and other times it wants to be this like goofy comedy, and just can't quite make up its mind what it wants to be. It's, it's a good point because it is a lot of different tones. It's like cyberpunk, action sci-fi, action comedy. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. But I do, I do enjoy it. Just this is not one of my favorites. Yeah, I think the first half always is. I always enjoyed the first half more than the second half. Yeah, I, I can see the, that. Yeah. 
because you have the, the the bit in the city is just amazing, all the flying right. cars and things. But yeah, but no, I personally I do like it. Good, good. So what about uh, what have you got then for your day after? All right. Well, as Dallas, Lilu, and Ruby Rod return to New York City, Ruby Rod is struck by a hover bus and killed. <laughs> Was that driven by uh, descendants of? Uh, the yeah, descendants yeah. of the original serial killer. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. I haven't done any serial killer for ages, but you you quite regularly knock off characters. I, you know what? I, bus, you you always know which characters in a movie I hate if they get hit by a bus. That is yeah. sort of the that's my signature All, move. Always within the first you know few minutes of the day. After. Exactly, exactly, because yeah. I don't want to have to deal with them anymore. And I, I that's I think uh, one of the things that definitely kept me from loving the Fifth Element was Ruby Rod and Chris Tucker's yeah. performance. I mean, it's great for what it's supposed to be. I think he did a good job of doing what Luke Besson wanted him to do. But I yeah. hate that character, and he's so annoying. And it really took a lot out of the movie for. Me, yeah, so. I think it is a hard one to like or even, you know, put up with. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, I know exactly, exactly what you mean. He does. I think if he'd been a bit more toned down or slightly different in his character, that would have the film could have been a little. Well, he wouldn't have been in it. But uh, <laughs> right, I would like yeah. to see Chris Tucker do a slightly different take on the character. But uh, yeah, that's the way they went with it. Yep. So, well, anyway, in my ending, he gets hit by a hover bus and he's killed. So, yay. Yay. Uh, Dallas and Lilu decide they want to take a break from all the craziness of the past few days. And Lilu needs to recuperate from, you know, like becoming the fifth element and all that. So they decide to take a vacation in Hawaii. While they're there, Lilu meets a little alien named Stitch. And together they learn that Ohana means family. No, not, not really. Um, Lilu and Stitch. <laughs> yeah, see? See what I did there? <laughs> oh, I like it. Oh, I didn't Thank even you. think of that. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't resist oh there must be some fan art for that some... oh I'm sure there's be... gotta be right oh, yeah. there's gotta oh, be some right. good fan art of Lilu and Stitch and if not there maybe there will be after this episode airs brilliant I hope so okay so anyway uh, that, that doesn't really happen in my ending I just couldn't resist <laughs> fitting it in there so they spend some time relaxing on the beach, avoiding any trouble and sipping on Mai Tais. One day, while they're just relaxing on the surf, a locomotive train suddenly appears out of nowhere. And a man <laughs> with long gray hair steps out of the locomotive, looks around and says, Great Scott! And that's where we'll leave it for now. I like it. Nice. For some reason, that makes perfect sense. In the <laughs> it does of the kind film. of seem really like, a, like it would fit, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I was putting that together, I was kind of like, I, these are two universes I can see melding in some way or another. No, definitely, yeah, I can see that. Oh, I like it. Thanks. Okay. All right. How about your day after then? Yeah, my day after. We've got Dallas and Lilu. They saved humanity and they're fated and rewarded on Back on Earth. They did a huge thing. Uh, they got a universal multipass, which gives them free travel anywhere, an awful lot of money, and a large apartment in new, new New York City or whatever it was called. Right. Uh, they spend the first few days together, either in bed or exploring the city and the world around them. Lilu is fascinated with humanity and also revels in all the various foods and drink and all the various food and drinks there are on offer. Ultimate evil has been defeated, but there is still evil in the world. Hmm. That's my day that, after. That that sounds ominous. Mm, dun, dun, and I, dun, I bet it won't. I bet it won't come out. I bet it won't come into play at all in, in your endings either. I'm sure. No, not at all. It's just going <laughs> off. Do its own right. thing. Yeah. Right, Evil's yeah. just chilling. It's on holiday. Just gonna throw it out there and then let, and let it hang, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> all right. Evil's just a bloke. He's just sitting there. He's going, oh, I can't be bothered today. Right. Evil procrastinates a lot. An awful lot. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that about evil, yeah, actually. Yeah. If you get, his, get everything together, you know, we'd all be in trouble. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Uh, what have you got then for your immediate aftermath? 
All right. Well, the man introduces himself to Dallas as Doc Brown and tells him, <gasps> yeah, shock, right? Didn't see that coming. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, he tells him that he's come from the distant past to help Dallas save the universe. Dallas tells him that he's too late and that he and Lilu already saved the universe. Doc Brown tells him that he doesn't mean the events with the fifth element. He means the universe as it is right now. Your ancestors, they screwed everything up. The world isn't supposed to be like this. We have to go back to the past and fix this broken world, he says. Doc Brown then goes on to explain that in the 1990s, there were three cousins, all direct ancestors of Dallas's, whose actions combined to change the course of the world. Dr. Malcolm Crow, who broke through the world of the undead and contacted a living human. Harry Stamper, who saved the world from a massive asteroid impact. And John McClain, a police officer who used extreme violence to solve way too many problems. Dallas and Lilu aren't sure what to make of all of this, but they take a leap of faith and board the locomotive with Doc Brown. Then the train fires up to 88 miles per hour and heads off into the past. Oh, I like it. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing what they, how they interact. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Should be interesting. Or do they all get one? Okay. No, no, no. I wouldn't do that. Uh, All right. Let's hear your immediate aftermath. Okay. Some fragments of the ultimate evil have survived and have been recovered by various individuals. Imagine, you know, the bit of evil that you get at the end of the time, bandits, that kind of thing. Everyone who comes into contact with the fragment ends up getting corrupted and evil seeps as it always has and always will through society. The Earth government begins to discover this and also finds out that those with the fragments have strange, twisted and dangerous abilities. They contact Lilu and Dallas to help. Dallas is reluctant at first, but he realizes he felt more alive than ever when fighting side by side with Lilu. They take the contract. And that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, interesting. I like it. Thank you. So let's see what's happening with Dallas and Lilu's travels through time. All right. Well, Dallas, Lilu, and Doc Brown arrive in the 1990s. It turns out that when Dr. Crow's patient began seeing dead people, he was breaking down a barrier between Earth and the afterlife. With the destruction caused by some of the fragments of the meteor striking the Earth, breaking the barriers down even further, things got pushed over the edge when John McClain killed an evil man named Hans Gruber. Unhappy being relegated to hell, Hans escaped thanks to the weakened barriers and started causing havoc on Earth, which was misinterpreted as alien activity by the government. It was this activity which caused the government to accelerate their plan to reach out to the stars to make contact with other alien races. This led eventually to the world becoming the overcrowded science fiction nightmare it's become in Dallas and Lilu's time. It rapidly accelerated the time frame for Earth to make first contact with aliens and changed the entire planet, and not for the better. When Dallas goes to confront the spirit of Hans Gruber, he finds that he's powerless against him. But Lilu uses the power of the fifth element, love, to eradicate all the hate-filled spirits that are about to break through to Earth. With the cataclysm averted, Doc Brown takes them back to the future, and they find that the Earth has gone from being a loud, crowded, chaotic mess to a utopia, a planet full of people who worship the fifth element, love. Doc Brown leaves Dallas and Lilu as they return to an Earth different from the one they knew, but one that is much, much better. And that's my After the Ending. Oh, nice. Like, it's a big, proper ending then. They saved, because they saved the universe and the fifth element, but then they saved the world. Exactly. Yeah, I kind of was like, you know, one of the things with the the Fifth Element again, you know, again, I just have issues with the movie. I guess like the whole new New York, whatever, without you know all the cars flying, it's such a loud, chaotic mess. And I was like, "Ah, it's not the future that I want necessarily. So we're gonna fix that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, in the the new future, they still have flying cars. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They still have flying cars. I'm fine with that. Then that's fine. I would never get rid of flying cars, please. Yeah, you got the flying cars. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Still have flying cars, but they drive a much more leisurely pace, and you know everyone's just about chilling out and and being in love. So that sounds that sounds like a good place. I thought so. Thanks. Nice. 
Very, very good ending. Well, thank you very much. All right, well, let's hear where yours is going then. Give us your long term. Okay, Leela and Dallas travel Earth and the galaxy fighting the forces of evil. They recruit a team of specialists to the fight. Uh, that also includes a pair of android assassins called Leon 5.0 and the key to kill a lot. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Uh, news of the team's exploits are closely followed by the world media and a strange religion begins to build around Lilu. Led by Zorg's stepsister, it worships Lilu, but over time that worship is twisted and subverted to say Lilu instigated the ultimate evil and in order to truly save humanity, she must be killed. Mm. Lilu and Dallas are now the hunters and the hunted. Mm. And that's my long term. Wow. I like it. Yes, sir. There's room for a whole other sequel there, Phil. Yeah, well, I was thinking a TV show, to be honest. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Very cool. And then back mm-hmm. it, wrap it all up in one final film. Right, right. Yeah. Look, at, look at you, Mr. Ambitious here. You got you got a whole plans for a franchise here. Oh, yeah, it's all planned out. I mean, season three, it gets a bit tricky. The writing's not as good. <laughs> but then season four and five picks up again. Right. Well, that's pretty standard, though. Season yeah. three is a lot of times, or, you know. Well, it's something I deliberately put into it because you've got to have people complaining. About well, that's true. Three. That's true. Yeah, because that way you can end strong. I get it. I get it. I like yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, I've got to plan ahead. Very cool. <laughs> all right. So, Phil, share with us the trivia element, will you? The trivia? Okay. <laughs> uh, Luke, Luke Besson originally wrote the screenplay when he was in school. Huh. Uh, you can sort of see that, though, with some of the story elements. You know, it's big and brash and there's crazy things going on. Right. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. Uh, Dallas and Zorg never meet in the film and are totally unaware of each other's involvement in what's going on. Hmm, interesting. Which, yeah, I hadn't thought about that at all, but it's true. Right. Uh, the, the explosion on the Floston main hall was the largest indoor explosion ever filmed, and it was very smoky, and they had to evacuate it because it almost set fire to the soundstage. Oh, jeez. Uh, most shots featuring Gary Oldman, uh, there is a circle around his head, and there's a circle in the middle of the frame, and which is it's a near-constant motif throughout the film, uh, and Bruce Willis is often framed by a rectangle or doorway behind him. So it's all things particularly set out. Shapes seem to be a big part of it. Uh, Luke Besson invented the divine language that Lilu speaks. And Mila Jovovich, who is fluent in four languages, she further refined it. And uh, the pair could have full conversations in the language. Uh, President, or the world president, he tells Vito Cornelius he has 20 seconds to state his point. And Vito talks for exactly 20 seconds. I like it when they do that, keep to the time limit of things. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Uh, it was supposed to be a trilogy. Right. Um, Mila, she beat out th- over 3,000 women who were uh, auditioned for the role of Lilu. And it features the Wilhelm scream when Zorg blows up right arm and at the airport when Lilu traps some aliens in the diva's room. So Very that's, cool. Uh, that's the fifth element. Always like a little bit of the Wilhelm scream. Well, yeah, you've got to mention it whenever it's it's screamed. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. It's like the Wilhelm scream in this case. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Oh, I just took a drink then. <laughs> Sorry about oh, that. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right, so that is the Warriors and the Fifth Element, and those are our endings for them. So uh, let's move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature, which we didn't even tease in our in our intro, Phil. This is kind no, of a big didn't. deal. Yeah. We got a little guest star tonight. We certainly have. Well, well, yeah, just a little guest star. Yeah, somebody that you know you may or may not have heard of if you are a really, really – Devout moviegoer, maybe you've run across him a time or two. He's kind of a character actor, not real well known. Yeah, Matt, something. It's uh, it's actually it's Eugene Fishberger, uh, oh, little, little known oh, actor. <laughs> my favorite. I've got a the full DVD set of uh, all his films. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you're a true fan, you have to, right? Yeah. Definitely. So well. <laughs> 
Anyway, what we really have tonight is a little conversation with an actor by the name of Matt Damon. Uh, yes, yes, I actually got the chance to speak with Matt Damon at the New York Comic Con last year. I've been holding on to this one for a little while now that The Great Wall has been uh, released worldwide. It seemed like the perfect time to share this conversation with Matt Damon talking about The Great Wall. Yeah, what was it keeping out? <laughs> well, he doesn't tell you that in the interview. I think oh, they wanted you to go no. see the movie. But... Curse you, Matt Damon. <laughs> now, I was not the only person interviewing him. It was a, a sort of a press conference style interview. Not a big one, though. It was me and a, and a good handful of other journalists. So uh, there are some other people. But um, uh, Matt was talking about the film and working with uh, Jean Nimo, which is the name of the Ch- a very famous Chinese director who directed the film. Um, and he was also joined by a couple of the, the uh, Asian stars of the film, as well as, as well as Pedro Pascal from Game of Thrones, who is his co-star in the movie. And I'm happy to report that uh, Matt Damon is actually one of the nicest, funniest, most charming, most down-to-earth celebrities I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, he really couldn't have been nicer and more thoughtful and more intelligent. And it was really, really cool to get the uh, chance to talk to him. Oh, it's always good to hear when they, they are as nice as, as you expect you want them to be. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, he's he's someone I've always liked a lot, and it's just after meeting him, uh, I like him even more now because he's just so darn cool and down to earth, and really everything you want, uh, you know, a big movie star to be. It was it was a really great experience, and I'm I'm glad that I get to share it with our listeners. Well, let's play the tape and let's have a listen. Okay. Well, here they're talking about uh, working with Jeanne Mo, the director, and uh, kind of being a fanboy and, and really loving his films and then getting the opportunity to work with him and what that was like. Well, not fighting monsters, but I thought a lot about working with him. Um, <laughs> you know, Pedro and I, like Pedro said, like, he called them pinch me moments, and it really was. Like, we've talked about it um, in real time as we were making the movie. Like, can you believe we're doing this? I mean... You'd walk onto these sets and they were massive. The scale was so big. And at the center of this hurricane was Johnny Mo, like, and watching him kind of create this thing on the massive canvas was, was just like, you know, you couldn't believe that we were a part of it. And we were a couple of the colors that he was hanging with. And, and uh, it, just, it just felt, it just felt like, like, uh, like a dream. It, it, the offer came to me out of the blue. Um, I, I've been chasing Zhang Mo for 20 years and, um, and suddenly got this, you know, as you say, you have a fangirl moment. Like, we're like serious fanboys of his. And, uh, and I went in to meet with him and we were in an office and it was about this size and it was surrounded with these storyboards um, and they unveiled them, basically. And I saw this, I mean, first of all, I... I I knew it was like nothing I'd ever seen, like nothing I'd ever done. And it was bigger than anything I I could imagine. And, you know, it was the great wall as if it was designed by Leonardo da Vinci. And the the wall kind of came alive. And I I just looked at it and it just just blew me away. And then the final thing he showed me was what the monsters would look like. And, you know, and it was Jean Mo. So (laughs) I I said, yes. It's always nice when they're excited to work with a director. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is definitely a case where uh, Matt was really psyched to get to work with with Johnny Mo. He's a big fan, and and obviously he's one of the most revered directors in China. So he has a very big he has a very big fan base worldwide. So there's definitely a lot of respect on on both sides yeah. there. 
Yeah. Uh, and here I got the chance to ask Matt a question directly, which was very exciting for me. And I asked him basically uh, what they kind of learned from each other's cultures, you know, since he was in China working with translators and, and being surrounded by hundreds and thousands of Chinese people, you know, what he took away from that and learned about the Chinese culture. With the, with the intercontinental cast, what did you guys learn from each other's cultures? I mean, we lived in China for half a year, and, and uh, which was an amazing experience. You know, I brought my my whole family, and um, we adopted Pedro. Yes, <laughs> it was great. I learned that I was a big baby. <laughs> They're like, um, "What do you mean you need uh, six hours of sleep? <laughs> Get up!" Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think. What, one of the really interesting things, I mean, Jaimo said earlier that we had over a hundred translators. I mean, it was the biggest movie that I've ever been a part of. It was just massive. Um, but despite the fact that we didn't all speak the same language, everybody there had spent their lives making movies. And we had that language in common. And it was really cool to see how much we actually uh, could speak through the work that we were doing together. Um, that, that, was, that was really cool. Here they talk about the scope of the production and what it was like doing these giant action scenes, which Johnny Mo is so famous for doing. We got there like a month early, and I walked onto the, you know, they were building these unbelievable sets, and I, and I walked in, and there were all these guys from the Shaolin Temple, like, doing flips off these walls, and I was like, oh my God, what is this thing? I mean, it was just, the amount of work that went into this is just, you know, it's, it's, it's staggering, and um, and watching everybody prepare. You know, there's these sequences where these women are are, are playing these drums and and like to, to you know to, to to communicate to everybody on the wall what's happening and how close the monsters are. And we would hear these drums. We'd get to work every day and be in the makeup chair and you hear these like drums. You know, these women were, and it's like it's awesome the amount of 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 work that you know the whole crane corps which is this really cool it's all the women female like, only fighting female only fight crew. but but Johnny Mo separated the army into colors right and very specific colors that he because he worked so much with color and 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 the blue uh, color is is called the crane corps and these are these women who dive off of these led by uh, you know Lin May who's the Argentine plays and like they, they they do these like acrobatic flips and like watching these women train for this it was just it's 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 so big it's just like it's 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 really beyond anything uh, that I've ever seen. That's I mean the born stuff we just go and do it. We just like, <laughs> <laughs> this was this, this was these people actually were preparing for, you know, for a movie. Matt's done a lot of movies. I haven't done a lot of movies, and to be on set with him and for him to say this is the biggest set that I've ever been on meant a lot to me. I was like, well. <laughs> in Qingdao, we had 200, so you know those uh, cargo, uh, giant cargo crates? Like, so we had 200 of those cargo crates that, that circled around the wall set and were draped with green screen. So it was bigger than any green screen ever. I mean, it was just massive. I mean, it had to be a half a mile of green screen um, so that he could paint, you know, he could work like in specific with our Arbit and then paint the rest of the world later. Um, and really transport you to this other place. 
And finally, Matt wasn't afraid to shy away from a little controversial topic, which was this sort of whitewashing casting in Hollywood. You know, the idea of, of him and Pedro Pascal being brought in as these, you know, American actors to this Chinese production. Uh, and well, the, he great was, white, the great white savior syndrome, some people call it, don't they? Right, right. And I actually, he's very candid about it, and I think he answers it very well. Um, and I think it's, uh, I, I think he gives a very well, uh, well-measured response that answers the question well, and I, I think he makes some great points. So um, people may have different opinions, but this is what Matt has to say about that. Yeah, it was a fucking bummer. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, but I had a few reactions. I mean, I was surprised, uh, I guess because it was based on a teaser. It wasn't even a full trailer, let alone the movie. So to get those charges levied against you, what bummed me out, actually, I read The Atlantic religiously, and, like, there was an article in The Atlantic, and I was like, really, guys? Like, you you know, I, I just, it was, um, I mean, to me, whitewashing, like, it, I think of Chuck Connors when he played Geronimo, you know? <laughs> and I look, there are far more nuanced versions of it, and I do try to be sensitive to that. But, you know, like, Pedro called me, and he goes... He goes, yeah, I mean, it, he goes, we, we are guilty of whitewashing. He goes, we all, we all know that only the Chinese defended the wall against the monsters when they attacked. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I never said that. <laughs> so, now look, I mean, it was, it, was, me. it was nice to have, like, you know, to react a little sarcastically because we were wounded by it, you know. It, it, we do take that seriously. That's a serious thing to... And we don't want people to be kept from work that they wouldn't have the opportunity otherwise to see that is very, very specifically Chinese. It's Zheng Yimou's lens. It is a creature feature. It's a big, fantastical, popcorn entertainment movie, but it has a visual style that is very, very much and it, his and, it's and a his giant only. Co-production. And there are actors we haven't met that are from China. There is a Chinese crew, stars, you know, that... that, that some of the Western world knows, but not 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 a lot. You so know? When, and when you, you look at it from, from like a marketing perspective, right? Like, I mean, what's a worse wipeout for a marketing team than to have that happen, right? As a as a backlash against the teaser you put out. And I thought of it from their perspective. I went, okay, well, they're trying to establish a number of things with in thirty seconds or a minute or however much they had. For it's not a full length trailer; it's a teaser, and they're trying to tease a the monster. Right, they're trying to they're trying to say, look, it's a visionary filmmaker that you probably don't know. Right, they're trying to speak to a bigger audience, not not us, but like a bigger audience. You probably don't know who this who this director is in Middle America. You know, this incredibly you know, this is the Steven Spielberg of China. Right, um, don't worry, they speak English in this movie. Right, so you hear my voice speaking English. Don't worry, Matt's in the movie. You've seen this guy before. Right, so they're trying to establish all these things. And by the way, there are monsters, right? And so, and thirty seconds, and you're done. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, there's a lot you're, they're trying to to a lot of pipe they're trying to lay in that thirty seconds. And and I guess in retrospect, like I watched that teaser a number of times to try to understand the criticism. But I, I ultimately where I came down in my in my look, if 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 people see this movie and feel like there's somehow whitewashing involved in a, in a creature feature that we made up. Um, I, I will listen to that with my whole heart, and I will, I, will th- I will think about that, and I will try to learn from that. I will be surprised if people see this movie and have that reaction. I would be genuinely shocked, and I, 
it's 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 a perspective that as a progressive person I, I really do agree with and try to listen to and try to be sensitive to um, but ultimately I feel like you you are you are undermining your own credibility when you attack something without seeing it I think you have to you have to you have to educate yourself about what it is and then make your attack or your argument and and then it's easier to listen to just from 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 my side, speaking from my side. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you very much, so Matt, taking the time. You know, yeah, he was he was he was fantastic. Uh, Pedro Pascal, who you heard in there a couple of times, he was fantastic as well. Everybody there, actually, and and uh, and Johnny Mo and a couple of the other uh, Chinese cast members were there as well. But their answers were all in Chinese, and there was a translator. It's a little harder to kind of uh, get the grasp of all that. But they were also very gracious, and it was just really an amazing experience. It made me very excited for the film. Uh, it's certainly one of my favorite interview memories so far. Excellent. No, it was really good to listen to as well. Thank you. So I wonder what films Matt Damon really, really likes from uh, 1988. Well, you know, I wish I would thought to ask him. Unfortunately, I didn't. So I guess we'll just have to settle for sharing our top 10 films of 1988, finally, <laughs> with yeah. our listeners. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, it does seem that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, Phil, why don't you take us back in time with your fancy time machine there and tell us what the world was like back in 1988, almost 30 years ago now. Whoa, 30 years ago. Isn't that crazy? It really is. Ah, oh, it just seems like yesterday. Yeah, good thing okay. I wasn't alive back then, because I'd feel really old if I was. Oh, yes, yeah, same here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, yeah, you know, I was uh, another good 10, 15 years till I was born. Oh, yeah, me too, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, I wish. Okay, so in 1988, the British Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher, and the US President was Ronald Reagan. So, you know, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have... Uh, the Winter Olympics were held in Calgary, Canada. The Liberal Democrats, the, the political party, was formed in the UK. Sonny Bono was elected mayor of Palm Springs, California. Celine Dion won the Eurovision Song Contest for Switzerland. And in computers, Windows 2.1 was released. Oh, wow. Fancy. Wow, yeah. Uh, and uh, a little boys club by the name of Al-Qaeda was formed by Osama bin Laden in 1988. Yeah, oh, terrific. Yeah, I know. Hmm the time machine there but anyway yeah. nasa resumed the space shuttle flights after the challenger disaster uh, the first prototype b2 spirit stealth bomber was revealed and tim berners lee begins to discuss his plans for what will become something called the world wide web mm. i'm still not sure how that panned out but uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know sounds mm. kind of dicey to me yeah world wide web that'll never catch on right uh, we also had the births of some people who are now like the uh, generation of actors and singers and things. We had uh, Hayley Bennett, Robert Sheehan, Skrillex, Rihanna, Sasha Gray, Finn Jones, Jesse J, Holiday Granger, Hallie Joel Osment, Sarah Paxton, Adele, Michael Sarah, Mae Whitman, Portia Doubleday, Rupert Grint, Alexa Vega, Alicia Vikander, uh, Zoe Kravitz, Emily Browning, Emma Stone, and Vanessa Hutchins. So some some very talented people there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And sadly, we lost uh, Enzo Ferrari, John Carradine, Roy Orbison, Robert A. Highland, Chet Baker, and the physicist Richard Fenman, who you've ever got a chance to read some of his essays and things. They're absolutely brilliant. Hmm, okay. But yeah, that was 1988. Okay, 1988. Well, let's jump in. We've kept people waiting long enough, so why don't we jump right into the films? Phil, go ahead and kick us off with your number 10. Oh, you know what? I forgot to do a list. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy doing what happened in 1988. I forgot the films. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to put it off for another week. Okay, my number 10 
is, uh, well, it's a small film called uh, Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile. Directed by Steve DeJarnett and starring Anthony Edwards and Mar Winningham. Huh. And it takes place mostly in real time. It's not the biggest film. It's not the best film. But it's uh, the whole concept is, got a guy called Harry. He's in a coffee shop, meets a girl called Julie, and falls, they fall in love. And they spend the afternoon together. They have a date to meet after her shift ends at a local coffee shop. But he uh, he misses the alarm and he, he he misses getting there. And he gets to the coffee shop and he calls and sorts it up. But then the phone rings and he picks it up and it's a guy panicking, saying the bombs are flying, the world's going to end in so many in seventy minutes. It's nuclear war, and it goes on from there. Wow, so that sounds really cool. It is. It's a great concept, and it's. Uh, I've never seen that one. Oh no, it's really good. I have and definitely got to check it out. It's my kind of movie. Yeah. And as I say, it's like mostly real time. It's uh, they meet people, you know, panicking, seeing what's happening, and uh, and at first you go and you're thinking it's just all a joke, and as time goes on, you realise it may not be. But Ooh, yeah, it's got a it's got a good eighty soundtrack by Tangerine Dream as well. Wow, cool. So that's my number ten. All right, I will definitely add that to my list of films to check out. I like that. Yeah, it's one of the ones I caught. I think I used to see the trailer when I was watching videos, and then I caught it late one night on TV or something. Right, right, very cool. Yeah. All right, well, my number 10 is about as different from that as you can get, and it is, uh, I'm sure, going to elicit a few groans from people in the audience, but I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> it is You Two, Rattle and Hum. Uh, uh, now, yeah, thanks, Phil. I didn't expect you to be one of the people groaning at me. Uh, You're not a You Two fan? I thought you were asking us to. Uh, I mean, I don't mind You Two. I'm not a huge fan, though, but no, uh, Rattle and Hum's good, though. Well, I'm a very big U2 fan, and when I, I got into them later, I didn't get into them in their early years. I got into them around the Akhtung Baby years, and then I, and I, you know, I listened to some of their stuff between, you know, before that, but I kind of went back then and, and delved really deep into U2, and I became very obsessed with them for a long time. And uh, they're still one of my absolute favorite bands. And so this was something I just watched over and over again, and it's a movie that I love. It, 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 it has a lot of great music in it. Rattle and Hum is one of my favorite albums of theirs, and it really let you get a chance to see the band's personality. Um, I know a lot of people think it was really pretentious of them to make this sort of concert film slash documentary, but yeah. I really loved it. I just think it's it's you know they're funny and they're charming, and the music is great, and the concerts are amazing. They have this energy and the set pieces with Bono, you know, holding the light on the edge, you know, which I feel like is a very like iconic image, even though the film wasn't a big hit. Um, you know, it's a very personal thing for me, but it's a time when I just like I said, I was, when I was getting into them as a band, I, I went back and watched this movie over and over and over and over again. Um, and I, I love the way it's shot and, and the way it looks. And it's just a movie that I, I really enjoy uh, still to this day. Perfect reason to have it in the top ten. Thank you. No, as I say, I'm not a huge fan of YouTube, but it is it is a good one. It's a good uh, live documentary kind of thing. I like it when they mix it up a bit as well. You see a bit, bit what's going on. It's not just the concert footage. Right, anything, but... right, exactly. Okay, so my number nine is, uh, well, we did Luke Besson's Fifth Elements. My number nine is The Big Blue. Hmm, another film I'm not really familiar with. Yeah, well, it's I, I didn't see it for a long time, but uh, when I did get around to seeing it, it's just, it deals with the comp, the childhood and lives of these two. It's based on two characters, but it's uh, heavily fictionalized, but about these two uh, divers, divers who do free diving, and they go, you know, that's the way they take to hold the breath and go as deep as they can without any... Aqualung or anything like that, but it's right. just it's got Sean Reno and uh, Jean Marc Barr, and it's just just the childhood, and it's got these beautiful shots of like on the ocean and under the ocean, and it's uh, it's quite dreamlike in places, but it's also got this the story of these two friends they become rivals and things like that, and it's uh, it's a it's a good one. It's just it just sort of you just flow with it, or just it just takes you 
It's nice. Very cool. I'll have to check that one out. I do like Luc Besson films, generally speaking, and I've never seen that one. I also happen yeah. to like, you know, like diving ocean type stuff as well. Yes, it's it's uh, it's just as I say, it just takes you. It's quite mystical, I suppose, as well in places, but it's uh, it's. I really enjoy it. All right. Well, my number nine is a film from the Netherlands, and it is called The Vanishing. Uh, it was remade starring Kiefer Sutherland and Jeff Bridges. Well, we won't talk about that version, uh, but the 1988 original film is a suspense masterpiece. Uh, it's about a man and he and his girlfriend stop at a rest stop and he goes inside, he comes out and she is completely gone and he never hears from her again. Three years later, he starts receiving letters from the man who abducted her. And that is all I'm going to say about it because it is a really suspenseful film, it has a great, great climax and it's just really fascinating look at the darker side of humanity was all I'm going to say. Uh, but it's a really cool film. It, you know, don't let the fact that it's in you know another language and it has subtitles scare you off if you're one of those people. It's really worth watching. Uh, it's a very dark, intense movie, and I love it. You know, I've I've not seen the original. I've seen the remake. Saw the American remake. Ah, well. And I just I always kept meaning to watch the original. Right. Because I always heard so many good things about it. It's And then it just slipped off my radar totally. Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. It's a really... And I, I hear it's very different from the... The remake is very different from the original. And um, yeah. the original is, is really outstanding. It's worth tracking down. Don't let the don't let your opinion of the remake uh, change your, your uh, desire to watch the original film. No, no. I always like to... I always keep them separate. I always like to see the remake and the, uh, the original of most films. Yep. It yep. does happen. Okay, well, that's a, that's an excellent pick. Uh, my number eight is Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, starring uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, and Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice, who's hardly in the actual film, uh, and also has Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones. And, you know, it's the couple who have the lovely house. They end up dying, and they get mixed up in the, the whole bureaucracy of the afterlife, and they, they don't like the people who are buying the house, want to scare them off, so they get professional human scarer Beetlejuice. And it's funny. It's one of Tim Burton's... Better ones, really, well, good ones. Got great performances by all involved. Some great uh, practical effects. And it's Beetlejuice, and that's my number eight. It's a great pick. It didn't make my list, actually. You know, I've, I've always liked Beetlejuice, and it's one of those movies, when it came out, I was completely obsessed with it. I just I thought it looked like the greatest yeah, movie yeah, ever, yeah. and I was all about it. And I um, and I remember when I, even when I saw it the first time, I was like, that was pretty good. But it was never one of my favorites. And, and there are great scenes. I love the whole the Deo you know, bit and everything. I mean, yeah, it certainly yeah. has a lot of magical parts to it. But I think at the end of the day, it's a little too Tim Burton for me because um, I, I tend to be very love it or hate it with him. It's certainly not a film that I hate. It's a film that I enjoy. Um, yeah. But not one of my favorites, I I, I will say. No, no, that's, that's all fair comments. Tim Burton can be like that. And I think if you're not in the right mood when you first see one of his films, it can just color it totally right. anyway. So, right, yeah. exactly. But it, but it is a good film and it is a good pick. Thank you. All right, well, my number eight is The Naked Gun, starring Leslie Nielsen, of course, one of the great you know parodies of the police yeah. genre based on a very short-lived TV show. Um, but so many great lines in that movie, so many great moments. Nice beaver. Thank you. I just had it stuffed. Just really funny stuff. I mean, I, I think it holds up really well, uh, and and it just it makes me laugh constantly throughout the entire movie. So, um, so that's my number eight. I mean, I don't really know what else I have to say about it. It's a no, great film. A, I think a lot of people enjoy it. It almost made my list. It's one of the last good parody movies, I think. Really, yeah, yeah. Before that genre sort of bit the dust. Yeah, because it just they just can't seem to do it anymore. But back then, there was they just like with was a police squad. That was the TV show. Yeah, wasn't police it? squad. Yeah. yeah. Police Squad and the Naked Gun, they just they just do it perfectly, the whole thing. Yep. 
play totally straight and just go totally all out bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Good. No good pick. Great. I like it. And uh, my number seven is another comedy, but this one is Scrooged. Ah, yeah, it's good. One. Uh, which is the the new take of well, new in nineteen eighty eight. I just say. <laughs> that, uh, Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, but this one was directed by Richard Donner, and stars the always brilliant Bill Murray, Karen, and Karen Allen, and the whole host of other people, Robert Mitchum as well. Uh, but uh, great movie. We all know the film. It's uh, Bill Murray doing what he does best, getting visited by three Christmas spirits, and I think he just you just. You're just watching it to see what Bill Murray's going to do. He just improvises, riffs on the whole thing, and it's a it's a great Christmas movie. One of my favorites. Very good choice. I, I like that movie very much. Didn't quite make my list, but it was on my short list. So good pick. Thank you. All right, my number seven is Young Guns, uh, the Brat Pack in the Old West. Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez. Man, I love that movie. Um, yeah, I had a feeling this would be on your list. It didn't quite make mine, mainly because I've not seen it in such a long time. Right. Right. It's uh, it's 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 uh, it's a great film. I I really enjoy it. I've always really liked Emilio Estevez uh, and Kiefer Sutherland, and and I think Emilio Estevez is great as Billy the Kid. It is definitely a very stylized version of the Billy the Kid story. Um, you know, meant to appeal to a teenage audience, and I was a teenager yeah, when yeah. it came out, and I I love it. I had the T-shirt which I wore for years and years, uh, <laughs> and it's still one of those movies that I like to revisit from time to time, um, and just has really great scenes. You know. Uh, just a, just a really fun movie, you know, definitely didn't take itself too seriously, knew what kind of movie it was, but wasn't silly either. You know, it really found the right tone. Uh, and, and I love it. It really holds a, it holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, it did though. You're right. It did get the tone just right for the eighties and it, uh, had a great cast that, yeah, it was fun, but, but it it was like, it was a proper Western as well. Right, right. Exactly. Which some people, some people forget, but, uh, no, it was a good one. As I said, didn't quite make my list, but that's mainly because I just haven't seen it in such a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great choice. I can understand that, but I, I do, I do, I do really enjoy it. Okay. Well, mine is a bit more serious than that one, though. Mine is a Mississippi Burning at number six. Ah, very good choice. Yeah, directed by Alan Parker, and starring uh, Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, and it's still to do with the uh, well in Mississippi and. Hackman and Defoe, the two FBI agents who've been assigned to investigate the disappearance of three civil rights workers. Um, they get met, met with hostility from the local residents, the police and the, the KKK. So it's dealing with uh, serious matters, but it's done so well. The whole, the whole period, because when it's set in 1964 and the whole set dressing and the period costume and everything is just spot on. And you've got Gene Hackman and Willem Defoe as the lead. So, you know, it's going to be well acted. Right. Right. But it's a, it's a, it's a great film. It's, it's hard watching places, but it's you know it's a moment in time, and it's uh, if you've not seen it, it's well worth checking that one out. Yeah, I actually it's one of those movies I've always wanted to track down, and I've just never gotten around to it. Yeah. So I am going to definitely check it out. I have always wanted to see it, and uh, I've heard good things about it. So this just cements it for me. Yeah, yes, but yeah, definitely do it. It's a good one. Very cool. All right. Well, my number six is lightening things up a little bit. It is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, of course, my obligatory Disney pick, but this isn't really a Disney film, like like in a in the classic Disney sense of you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think Roger Rabbit is one of those movies that people you know it was a big hit when it came out and people saw it, and I think most people just remember like oh yeah, Roger Rabbit, he's silly, and then you know it's live action and animation and yada yada yada. But I, it's actually a, a subversively good film in my opinion. It's it's a really good kind of noir mystery 
with comedy elements to it. Uh, Bob oh, Hoskins. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, Bob Hoskins is fantastic in the lead role. What he does having to interact with all these cartoon characters, you know, there is, of course, Jessica Rabbit is great, you know, a great character, a very iconic looking Oof, character. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's 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 got a lot more going on than just being, you know, live action and animated mixed together. There is a really cool story to it, and it's got this great kind of Hollywood noir, which I really like. And it's one of those movies that I, I tend to forget about sometimes, but when I do revisit visit it i'm i'm always reminded of how much i actually really enjoy it so that's my yeah, number think, six i think you got that spot on yeah you think back to it people just think of the, the slapstick humor and the technical achievement right right exactly you, f- you forget there's actually there's a lot going on the great performances by bob hoskins and the rest yeah and it's, yeah. A, it's a good uh detective story as well right it's not and it's not really a kid's film you know people yeah. people oh it's it really way. dark and it's twisted <laughs> right. and, and it's like lots of so much innuendo in all many of the lines that the characters say yep yep exactly yeah. and that's what i like about it is it's just it's this really you know in-depth film that has so much more going on than, than people remember about it so i like to remind people from time to time that it's it's a it's a very good movie good call yeah it didn't make my list but uh because as we've explained then i was just thinking back to the superficial elements of it but, right yeah. right yeah. Fair enough. A lot of people do. Wow. Good pick. Okay. Thank my you. number five, though, is uh, it's the fantasy film directed by Ron Howard with a story by a man called George Lucas. It is Willow. Great pick. Starring Warwick Davis, Val Kilmer, Joan Worley, Gene Marsh, Billy Barty, and lots of other people. It's uh, set in a fantasy realm with different races, and there's a, a baby is born who can defeat the evil queen, and then Willow, played by Warwick Davis, who's a wants to be a sorcerer, magician kind of thing. He, he sets out to... Uh, fulfill this prophecy with this baby and meets up with Val Kilmer doing one of Val Kilmer's best roads as Mad Martigan. And it's uh, it's great. It's got some great set pieces, good chases. It's got a very funny script, good special effects. Uh, it's a good story. And it's it's the mainly, though, it's got great characters and they do, do good things with it and the interaction between the characters. That was an excellent pick. I, I agree with it. And in fact, I agree with it so much. It's also my number five. Oh, yes, we yeah. tallied up. <laughs> yep. Yay. Yep. I know we talked about it on the show before. I can't remember exactly when, but I, I know that. Yeah, I, I, I can recall we did, but we've done so many shows now. So. I know, I know. Yeah. But uh, I, I knew, I, I had a feeling it would be on your list as well. I, I feel the same way about you. It's just this great, fun fantasy adventure. Um, and I think I talked on the show about how I was very obsessed with this movie. I had all the toys and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a great film. I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and uh, so it's my number five as well. Yes, so Willow. I think it'll be on lots of people's number five, uh, top ten for the list. I think. I think it's a movie that, even yeah. though it was never the biggest hit in the world, like they wanted it to be, it never launched a franchise like I think they hoped it would. I think a lot of people have fond memories of it. Oh yeah, I think good memories, and I think they were trying too hard to make it into something. Right. Right. My number four is a film directed by Martin Brest, starring Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. It's Midnight Run. It also stars Jaffa Koto, John Ashton. Dennis Farina, Joe Pantaleone, and Philip Baker Hall. And it's a great one. De Niro's a bounty hunter who's tasked with getting uh, Grodin's character back to L.A. He Grodin is playing an accountant who knows, who's embezzled money from the mob. So he's De Niro's getting chased by the mob and other bounty hunters. And it's funny and it's full of, full of swearing, but it's funny. And these action pieces and there's jumping off bridges and cars and chases and Cardo's been open to people's faces, and it's just a great script and lots of fun. And uh, it's it's good it's good seeing De Niro doing a comedy, action comedy kind of thing, but doing one with a good script, not like some of the ones he's been involved in lately. Right, right, agreed. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, that movie has a very devoted fan base. I mean, I know there are people who think that's one of the greatest movies ever made. And I, yeah, honestly, yeah. I, it didn't make my list because I haven't seen it since it came out. I remember watching it in the 80s, and that was the last time I've seen it. And mostly what I remember about it is that it, I think it uses the F-bomb more than any other movie I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. That's my big takeaway from that movie. So it's certainly one I need to revisit because it it, it, it could be one of the greatest movies of all time. And I, mean, I think I saw it when I was you know fairly young, so... I don't have a, a real sense of it as a film. You know, I, I remember... Well, yeah, because I, I remember when it first came out and then I didn't see it for a long time and then it came out on Blu-ray when, and that's why I got it again then and watched it again. I hadn't seen it since probably like not long after it came out or right. maybe a couple of years after that. But um, watching it again, though, it just it works really well. It's, you should check it out again because it seems like a modern-day film. Yeah. The way, it's, the way it's all done. Right, right. Yeah, definitely so, one of those ones I've been meaning to get back to because I do know a lot of people are, are, like I said, huge fans of it. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't seem dated, which is nice. Right, right, exactly. I just I just don't have enough memory of it to, to have it rank high on my list. So, But good pick. Okay, and what, what's, uh, what about your number four? All right, my number four is Alien Nation, starring James Caan and Mandy Patinkin. Uh, great science fiction uh, film, really about immigration, about the you know this alien <laughs> ship that comes to Earth and these newcomers, as they're called, uh, you know, sort of emerge into the society of the world. And of course, there's a lot of you know racial tension or species tension, I guess you will, between the humans and the aliens, and it leads to uh, you know it turns into sort of like a buddy cop film, although not a comedy. But it's it's a great kind of just neat sci-fi action film that happens to have some message behind it. And then it went on to spawn a TV show, which I'm actually a huge fan of. It only lasted yeah, one I like, season. I like the show as well yeah. as the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I loved the show, and I really thought that the movie was a great springboard for that. So maybe this made it so high on my list because of my love for the show. Maybe there, I think maybe it wrapped up a little bit. But when I go back and watch this film, like I said, as just as like a pure kind of sci-fi cop action movie with a bit of a message thrown in, I think it really holds up. It's kind of a nice, you know, a, a taut you know, quick and dirty, ninety-minute type of movie. It doesn't, it doesn't meander too much. It just sort of gets in, does its job, and gets out. And and I really like that. It has it's it's got a a really good eighties feel to it, and I mean that in the the best way. And when it comes yeah, to action yeah, films, not it in works, the bad it way. works. Yeah, that's my number yeah. four. It's I really do like that film. It didn't make my my list, but it's no, it's a, it's a great pick, and it's a it's a good. As you say, it's a it's dealing with real heavy concepts, but right. uh, it, it does it well. Yeah, and I like the whole uh, idea of like. The aliens come in and they just they end up getting assimilated into uh, the culture and the to the environment, right? And look down on. But uh, kind well, of a District, precursor to District Nine, if you will. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Yeah, it's uh, it is just it's a different take on it, but pretty much the same setup. Right. Not quite as they're not they're not treated quite as bad as they are in District Nine. Right. Right. Okay. My number three is uh, another sci-fi one. This is an animated one. This is uh, Akira. Ah, great choice. Katsuhiro Otomo. Uh, based on the manga of the same name. I, I recently saw it again. It was on the cinema. We released over here. Uh, when was it? Just before Christmas last year. I, and it was amazing. I've always loved the film, but seeing it again on the big screen, it's just what a phenomenal piece of art and and storytelling. It's just like a big, mad cyber trip. I just I just love it. The, the bike chase at the start, and then it's, it was watching it again on the big screen, just seeing the little bits like when... Uh, the gang are like waiting in the police station. All the little things going on in the background with other characters and just the amount of time. It's not when you see some animated things and there's just the background's just left and it's blank. But this one is just every single inch of it is packed with detail and things, and it's just all wrapped up in this. You know the mystery of Akira, and then you have a guy whose arm just keeps getting bigger and bigger and goes mangled, all goes 
totally trippy and weird. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's uh, my number three. Very good pick. You know, it's funny. I um I I I, I got obsessed very easily when I was younger. I was obsessed with the world of Akira when I was younger. Uh, I read all the the original comic books. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and I and I loved them and. I was I was this movie was one that I watched over and over again. So you'd think it would make my list, but it's weird. I have a weird kind of relationship with that movie. I love the first half of it. The second half where it gets all trippy and weird, I'm I'm not as big a fan of. I think the movie looks amazing. Um yeah, but yeah. I always find that I always get excited to watch it and then I watch it and at the end I feel let down by it. Um, and I don't know if it's because the, the, it doesn't live up to the manga because I think the, the manga is, is better in terms of its storytelling or if it's just – I don't know what it is. It's just one of those movies that, like I said, I always get excited to watch it and then afterwards I go, oh, yeah. I don't really like that movie <laughs> no, as I, much I, as I want to. <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah, it's, I can I can see where you're coming with that because the ending, it is a bit different and it sort of just goes, uh, uh, yeah, this is happening. Ooh, expand your consciousness. Right, right. But yeah, because especially when you read the comic books as well, you realize how – much more the rest of the story, but uh, I agree with your points. But uh, I, uh, I, I just like it all. Sure, no, yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 a cool film. I do like it. It's just it's not the film I think I want it to be. But watching watching it again recently, and knowing it was made in 1988, it just it still blows lots of other animated films away. Oh yeah, for, like, it is a work C- of art for sure. Yeah, lots lots of CG uh, digital animated films as well it just d- destroys even though it's uh yeah yeah it's it's really something for sure okay what about your number three all right well i think we're going to start getting into some similar territory here but we'll, we'll see what happens my number yeah. three is not akira it is they live by john carpenter featuring one of the best fight scenes of all time and it also features the immortal line i'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and i'm all out of bubble gum which i i don't know about you phil but i've used that in my life Many a times, yes, I have as a as a quote. Not really there when I was there to kick ass because I don't do that a lot. But you know, just as sort of a a fun throwaway quote. It's just such a great yeah. movie. You know, it's it's this yeah, cool... put the glasses on. That's always another word. Right, right, right. It's, just it's, put them on. <laughs> exactly. It's it's John Carpenter at his best. You know, doing that thing he does well, where he, you know, he, he makes this kind of serious science fiction film, but it's fun and it has some goofy moments, but it has a message and it's you know it's got this dark undertone and it looks great and it's it's you know it's just oh, it's such a great movie. I. I I really love it, and I know a lot of people out there has a very devoted cult fan following. Um, and and every time I watch it, I am reminded of just how much I enjoy it. So, uh, it it could have been my number one. There's a couple films that came in ahead of it, but it definitely was going to be high on my list. So it's my number three. Well, it's your number three, and it's my number two. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah, As every, everything you said. Yeah, it's just, I mean, Roddy Piper and Keith David are just brilliant, and just a little little bits and pieces the people they meet, and. It's not that big a budget of a film, but just what he what Carpenter does with it, like the bits when Nard, uh, Roddy Piper's character Nard, just comes into town, and it's just there's not many people around, but that all fits in, and it's like you realise the world's falling apart, but you don't know why. And then when he gets the glasses and puts them on, and you get the black and white, and then the juxtaposition of the colour, and then then when he sees the aliens and things, it's just it's so well done. Yeah, it really is. And then you get to, we, we you do get to hear you you learn more bits about what the the aliens are doing, but you never quite see exactly what what they're doing, things like that. But you just it's just it's good that there's a bit of mystery and just how it all comes to a comes to a head. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But that's my number two. So what's what's your number two? Uh, my number two, I'm kind of I'm gonna say I'm, I'm surprised it's not on your list because I I think I know that where we're going for number one. I think we're on the same page for our number one. So I'm surprised that my number two didn't make your list. If I'm right about your number one pick, did that all make sense? Oh. Oh, yeah, it does, but I wonder if this is something I've totally forgotten about. So my number two is Big, 
starring Tom Hanks. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Which is t- just a great classic comedy. You know, um, it's it's boy wishes to be big. It's you know young kid in a grown up's body. It's kind of a, a great child fantasy film. You know, every, it's a film that every kid can relate to and every adult can relate to. Um, there's so yeah. many great moments. Tom Hanks is is brilliant in it. I mean, there's the piano scene and you know him playing with the toys and everything, and uh, just a really really fun movie. And and it's one of those movies that I can watch and, and just I have a smile on my face the whole way through. Yeah, it, it's. I do love the film, and it does make me laugh, and all those reasons. But it didn't quite make my list. All right, fair enough. All these are the ones. But we did go after the ending for it back That's in right. episode twenty-one. Yep. And I think, if I recall, I, I went really dark with my ending. I seem to recall that you did. Yes. I think I really did. I yeah. think I scared myself. But I think you redeemed no. it at the end, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So the very it was cool though. So if you haven't listened to that one and you're interested now, go back and listen because I think we had some really fun endings for that one. And we had a special guest on that episode, Chad Michael Collins, the actor from the Sniper movie series. Uh, he joined us. He's also been on Once Upon a Time on on uh, ABC. He joined us for that episode and and had some comments on our endings and stuff. So go back and listen to that if you're if you're looking for something to listen to. Yeah, it was a good good episode. Well, they all are, but that was a good one. Episode 21. All right. All right. Well, I, I am 99.99999% sure that we're on the same page for our number one film. But why don't you go ahead and give the big reveal then, Phil? Yes. Uh, of course, it is DOA, the one starring Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. <laughs> yep. You nailed it. That was mine, too. <laughs> it would be, be everybody's number one for 1988. Of course. Who wouldn't pick that as their number one? Yeah. Although I do like the whole concept of that one. The guy who's been poisoned, he's got to work out who killed him. Oh, yeah, him yeah, no, I, I, it's, a, it's an enjoyable enough film, but the, the yeah. not, not quite the number one. No, uh, and I will just go into it now. My number one, and I'm sure it's Mike's, is Die Hard. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yippee Kaye, mother. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That is my number one as well. and it's a, it's a joint number one, I think we can safely say. I have to imagine yeah. that many, many people who had put together a list for 1988 would come up with Die Hard as their number one. Yeah, it's one of the best action movies of all time. Yeah, it's probably my favorite action film of all time. I, I off the top of my head, I can't think of anything uh, that would that would beat it. Yeah, it's a pop- yeah. I mean, if we're talking just action, not going into science yeah, fiction yeah. and stuff, um, yeah, Die yeah. Hard is probably my favorite. It is it is pretty much a perfect film as far as I'm concerned. It's it's like Die Hard in a, an office building. <laughs> Well played, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it sets off a whole wave of these kind of films. And they're still going, these kind of films, but it's... Uh, it's because it's such a great formula, you know? It's hard yeah. to top it, so people just copy yeah. it. But yeah, it's just... You can't, you can't... I don't think there's much you can fault it on. You really can't. I mean, it's, if Bruce Willis is fantastic. Of course, Alan Rickman got introduced yeah. to the world as Hans Gruber, who I mentioned in my ending earlier. Yes, you uh, did, yeah. You know, he's he's brilliant. I mean, the action sequences are stunning. The ending is terrific. It's got the comedy, the limo driver and the cop and all these characters. Yeah. You know, it's got yeah. the it's got the emotion because of his wife, and it's got suspense and it's got thrills and uh, you know just memorable lines. Yeah. I mean, so Shoot much. The glass. Right. Shoot the glass. Shoot the glass. Just love Alan Rickman's face. Just Alan Rickman is just so exasperated with his people in yeah, his team yeah yeah it's great i mean it's just it really is a, a perfect action film in in my mind so that's 1988 we finally did it phil we did it hooray i hope it was everything yep. that everyone has been building up in their minds because i'm sure people have been obsessing over this daily you know i'm sure they haven't been able to think or, or sleep or anything until they got to hear our top 10 films in 1988 well that was 1988 and i think it was a good year 
Yeah, overall, a lot of films that I enjoyed for sure. I definitely my my short list was a longer short list than usual. There was a lot of movies that I liked. Um, yeah. In the end, for me, it got fairly easy to narrow it down to my top ten. Uh, a lot of the ones that were outside the list were ones that I liked a lot, but you know, didn't necessarily make top ten list. But uh, but still, overall, a pretty good year. Yeah, because I, I had a few films which I thought I felt should be on the list, but then I was thinking, but no, they're not my favorites, even right. though they're brilliant movies. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. It was a tricky one, boss. I did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good list. Good, enjoyable, fun, fun to revisit. Nineteen eighty-eight. Oh, definitely. Always good to go back to the eighties. Well, oh, yeah. to a limited extent. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that's going to start to wrap things up for us here in this episode. Phil, tell people what they can look forward to next week. Okay, so we've just got back to our normal schedule with the after the endings and a full episode after doing a few bonus episodes. So next week you can be guaranteed to hear another bonus episode. <laughs> yep, that's right. Or mini episodes. Sorry, we're calling them mini episodes now. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got another mini episode heading your way purely because we've got uh, – there's a few holidays, work things, you know. Yeah, kids off of know. school, vacations, all kinds of stuff. You know, this and that. You all know what it is. We've got a few movies to watch. Right. Well, I've got a stack of movies to watch. But <laughs> Likewise. It's going to be a mini episode or two, and we'll be doing some top fives. And you can get in on this. You can suggest what top five things we should be doing. Yeah, any any kind of themed top five list you can think of, throw it our ways. It could be top five movies about bugs or, you know, top five scarves worn by Audrey Hepburn. I don't know. Whatever yeah, you want it to be. <laughs> your favorite scene with somebody walking down some stairs. Right. right. The best time a director did something funny on set. There you go. Uh, whatever yeah. you want. Whatever you want. Actually, yeah. Send us your you suggestions. Know, we'll pick the best ones and we will use it in our upcoming mini episodes. Phil, how can they do that? You can you can do it by sh- going outside and shouting as loud as you can. <laughs> uh, make sure you don't do that, you know, after the hours nine o'clock, people are sleeping right. and have children. Right. Or if you want to try and actually get it to us, you can get us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. I'm on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can email us on... You can email us directly at afterTheEnding at Verizon.net. So send us those lists. We would like to hear them. And like I said, we'll pick the best ones and use them in our upcoming mini episodes. And you can also leave comments on the podcast platforms that you're listening to this on. I know you can do it on SoundCloud. You can leave comments on particular bases on there. That's and right. iTunes and whatever. Yeah, get us. you can get in touch with us however you wish. We're not hard to track down. No. But we may ignore you. <laughs> that, that is a possibility, but we're not hard <laughs> to find either way. <laughs> and on that note, we would like to thank you very much for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. And I'm on testing, testing. It's all good here. <coughs> and that's Mike doing his special way of testing. <laughs> yeah. And just quickly before we start, I want to... I want to... Not that quickly, apparently. <laughs> Digital cross trader. Thank you. And real quickly before we start, I just want to sh- throw a yep. <laughs> Digital cross trader. <laughs> DJ Swan takes charge of the Warriors and leads Ajax, Snow, Cowboy, Swan. No, Swan is him. He doesn't lead himself. That yeah. Would be weird. Okay. DJ Swan, the leader of the Warriors, takes charge and leads Ajax, Snow, Cowboy, Vermin, Cochise, Fox, and Rembrandt. Rembrandt? Yeah. Okay, I can talk tonight. (laughs) It sounds like another version of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, right, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Michael, someone can now know my mock Matt.
What are you saying? Oh, I, I did not know where you were going with that at yeah. all. I was so confused. <laughs> I, trying to guess the name. No, I, now I get it. But yeah. I was like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> Whoa, you all right? Yeah, it's okay. Would you fall? No, no. Just my chair. My chair moved and knocked over some stuff. Oh. That's usually my line, Phil. I'm the one who knocks stuff over all the time. Now <laughs> you're stealing not- my bits, dude. Don't be doing that. Yeah, but this just knocked over like a few bits of like, posters, a couple of posters. It didn't knock mm-hmm. over like a bookcase. All right. Just <laughs> muscling into my, on my territory here. I don't know how <laughs> I feel about that. <laughs> all right. Okay. It's all good here now. Okay. I'm all there. Uh, I didn't, nothing was hurt. All right. <laughs> we're fine here. We're, we're fine. How, how are you? <laughs> it's a boring conversation anyway. <laughs> The evil TV exec who gets visited by three, by three Chris. What was that? What's going on? Is that you or me beeping over there? That was my phone. It must have Here been. some pics. Taken three. <laughs> Rocky, I, I, I. Stop. It must have thought I said, hey, Siri. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. I really did think about, like I mentioned a couple episodes ago, about about saying we should do a different a different year this year. Yeah. But oh, what you should do is like try and get some uh, radio static as we're talking, like it fades out and then. It's just... <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, right? Like the awesome, like yeah. twenty minutes of just static, yeah. you can't hear anything, uh, and then it just comes back in. Yes, yeah, so that was our top ten of nineteen eighty eight. Right, right, and then the next week we would do something like we'd be like, well, we had some technical difficulties, so <laughs> we're going to do it again, and then we'll have something else happen, like instead yeah. of static, it'd be something different, like a, a like a different radio broadcast would cut in, you know? Yeah, we have a we have a bit of. A, I did awesome Wells doing a yeah World right World's right right up. exactly. <laughs> and just every week we just go back to it. that'd be so. We awesome. now go over to the dad's hall where things were <laughs> right, fun. Right exactly. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the plan all work though. We have two weeks. Well, we have a few weeks of sickness. Then we do a list, and then we give you the FBI. There we go. The FBI. I was just trying to do a diehard thing. It, it worked in my head, and then realized I was saying it. it <laughs> I was say, I'm going to go ahead and yeah. rule that did, it didn't work. <laughs> that, that, this one's for the outtakes. This was a deliberate one for the outtakes. Oh, there, yeah, yeah, right. Just in case we didn't have enough, it's good to yeah. we like to throw a couple in, you know, on purpose. Yeah. I, I Think of you. something which could possibly be funny, but then don't do it very well, <laughs> right. so it just falls flat and dies deliberately for the outtakes. We, you know, we, I work very hard to do those. Oh things. yeah, listen, I got to tell you, you succeeded. I mean, like gangbusters on that it's one. It's so hard toning down the humor. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's tough to make yourself not be funny when you're so naturally funny. Not everyone can kill a joke like that. <laughs> Takes a special talent, Phil. It's, it is a rare talent. <laughs> I trained for years. I'm sure. Uh, fantastic. 